사람 많이 기다리셨죠? 아니요. 빵을 좀 사느라고 하세요. 빵을... 빵을... Hello and welcome to Callus and k n i s the podcast devoted to personal explorations the New York Film Festival. I'm your host as well, always Ryan Swen, and we are probably but somehow back. Uh, I know it's been a, a very long time since I've recorded one of these, and, and it still might be a little while longer just in terms of scheduling and things like that. But even though the New York Film Festival for this year, 2022, has ended, I've decided that I'll still do a festival dispatch, even though the roundtable is uh, considerably smaller than last time. I'm very happy to have uh, my guest. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Nick Newman. I'm managing editor of The Film Stage, a website devoted to film writing and sundry related topics. And I do some writing elsewhere, and I do other things to keep me occupied and make myself money. And I'm very happy to be here with Ryan talking about the 60th New York Film Festival, which concluded all but two weeks ago. Thank you. And uh I realize for some reason I haven't had you on before, but uh, thank you for coming on and being willing to be the only guest for this uh, dispatch. Oh, I'm very flattered that you asked. I'm a fan of this podcast, <sighs> and I hope I can live up to whatever extra burden is put on someone by being the sole guest. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so just to start, uh, what, did you, what was your general feeling um, or impression about the festival? Sure. It's funny because... I think almost any gathering-related, public-facing event is still being talked about as either a mid-pandemic, post-pandemic, something in that dense, unfortunate constellation. And this is the second New York Film Festival that has been held publicly with public in-theater screenings since the pandemic, let's say, began. And talking to people who work at Lincoln Center, who work for the festival, there was very much across this spectrum of people I talked to, them speaking independently of their experience, the feeling that this was kind of the first festival since 2019 that felt like a back to normal. Obviously, some things are going to stand out as abnormal or... unfortunately part of a new normal such as the need to wear masks during a screening which is, still can't help looking a bit dystopian if you look around a theater and see a bunch of people masked up just because i think to myself if three years ago i could see into the future and see this i would imagine there was some cataclysmic you know nuclear attack or some <laughs> such that occurred that requires us to wear masks but it is I think ultimately, as I'm saying this, I'm realizing part of a new normal. But at the same time, theaters were filled to capacity. There were more screenings than in the last year. And I think it was around the 2019 number. And if a listener of this podcast hasn't been to the New York Film Festival, maybe it's just worth stating that a funny thing about it is how it almost exclusively takes place on a one-block radius of Lincoln Center. Mm -hmm. There's the Alice Tully Hall, which is used for sort of big, splashy screenings, premieres, gala events, and the like. There's the Walter Reed Theater, which is kind of used for anything in between, and then the Eleanor Buna Monroe, which hosts two screens. And um, between them, it, it was a really constant hub of activity in a, in a very short space. You know, you could go from 
a main slate screening of a movie that'll be out in one week, like Decision to Leave, and then you mm-hmm. can go over to a current screening of a feature that has no distribution and unfortunately may never get distribution. Mm-hmm. And if that sounds like the standard expected experience of the New York Film Festival, I think that is a signal of how much they've kind of been getting themselves back into fighting shape, mm. so to speak. It was, I don't know, it, it, for me, it, it was very nice overall because as a New Yorker or someone who's lived in the city their entire adult life and also went to college uh, for that, I really do cherish this time of year as a movie-going slash communal moment. I mean, a thing I, I said to somebody to explain why I keep going from Brooklyn to the Upper West Side every day is that the New York Film Festival is the only time of year that my wants and my needs are a circle of a Venn diagram. <laughs> you know? And I, I felt it was a, a fairly strong lineup, all things considered. I Partly just because of scheduling and the fact that I was going to the press and industry screenings, I think most of what I saw was main slate titles, which would suggest something a bit more mainstream or digestible, but I think that's belied by the range of titles that I was still seeing all the same. It felt like a very strong international selection, a spread of film styles, and there wasn't really a, a sense of, unlike in some previous years where, you know, you're kind of seeing titles that six months prior when it played at Berlin, you would say to yourself, oh, I bet that'll be at the New York Film Festival. Mm -hmm. There were still surprises to be found in there. Definitely. I'm very happy to hear that. It was sort of a strange thing where, like, I know that programmers this year generally had, uh, like, in in film festivals had something of a more difficult time simply because of Mm -hmm. the strange imbalance that the 2021 release of of a bunch of films that have been held back but certainly from the variety of things and it did seem like a stronger festival than i think some of the programmers had sort of feared mm. um and yeah i have seen some of the films uh we'll, we'll talk about some of them but for the most part it will still be on nick um <laughs> as, as my far-flung correspondent uh and so uh let's actually start with a film not in the main slate uh in currents uh Bertrand Bonello's Coma. Yeah. Well, Coma, for those who don't know, is the new film by Bertrand Bonello, who I think has established himself as a pretty formidable force in the international scene in the last, let's say, several years. He was working Mm -hmm. in France, mostly under the radar for more than a decade of feature filmmaking. I think his first feature, Something Organic, is from 1998, I want to say. But... That movie has certainly never been released in the United States. I can recall one time it's ever played in New York, period, in our (laughs) amazing repertory schedule. Even then, a film like that is underrepresented. But in 2011, he had a feature called House of Tolerance that was one of his first films to get distributed in the U.S. I think it was the first film to get any sort of notable distribution, if Mm -hmm. we're speaking of it frankly, which is to say it would play in more than one theater. Yeah. Yeah. Subsequently, <laughs> there was Saint Laurent, which on the outside is kind of a traditional biopic of a famous person, but I think is certainly much greater than that. And that was released by Sony Pictures Classics in 2015. Nocturama, his fairly controversial and somewhat had a bit of a film Maudit quality to it because it's about terrorism mm-hmm. and it was 
coming out in Paris shortly after terrorist attacks at the country. I actually helped release that movie at Grasshopper right. Film in 2017. Zombie Child 2019 yeah. was a smaller release, but what's interesting about that is that it was... It got to the point where a Bertrand Bonnell movie could have a quote-unquote smaller release, <laughs> which I think is a sign that he's he has been on kind of an ascendancy. And now we have Coma, which I'm so sorry to say does not have distribution and is still oh, right, seeking yeah. it in the United States. But I had seen this movie in February off of a link in the virtual Berlin lineup mm-hmm. because Berlin was both physical and virtual. And I came away pretty much immediately knowing it was going to be one of my films of the year. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, this is really kind of a summation of so many things Benella has been working towards. An idea buoyed by the fact that the first images in the movie are actually from Nocturama, which grow increasingly artifacted as he zooms in and pixelates the image over a address that he has made to his daughter. Uh, where he describes how he's sort of a bit worried about the world that she's inheriting, but also believes in her very truthfully and how his movies have become kind of a means of speaking to her. An idea that is continued with this teenage girl of about 18, played by the actress from his previous film, Zombie Child, which he has said was kind of influenced by talking to his own teenage daughter about the way that girls live nowadays and the movie is i think probably i mean i i said this one after i saw it and if it seems like uh you know post post film the high that sends you on a hyperbole so be Mm -hmm. it i really think it's maybe like the definitive film of the 2020s so far Mm -hmm. and how it captures the experience of living during covid and the not just the isolation but the connectiveness through technology something that i don't think the movie treats as piddling or insincere or necessarily a poor substitute you know Benello is very interested in different ways of photographing and capturing an individual environment so why wouldn't he find a zoom window fascinating mm-hmm. or why mm-hmm. wouldn't he consider what it means for if he's if he's worried about the world that a teenage girl inherits why wouldn't he take seriously the sort of parasocial relationship one develops with a YouTube star who she loves. And it mixes mediums because there is full screen visions of this YouTube show. There are zoom windows that take up the entire screen. There's bits with stop motion and uh, plastic dolls, including one that when confronted about by its partner about cheating starts spouting off Trump tweets (laughs) <laughs> in a in a gesture that uh, I remember watching it on a on my TV and just being like completely captivated and enveloped by this film and just gobsmacked at this particular decision. There's a there's a slight element of throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. I think maybe because you know he had been developing a science fiction feature called The Beast with Leah Seydoux mm-hmm. and Gaspard Yuliel, who tragically died earlier this mm-hmm. year and. He, he has a voice performance in Coma that is actually now his final credit, I believe. Mm-hmm. And the film has, yeah, definitely a throw at the wall, see what sticks approach. But to me, just about everything does stick. And mm-hmm. if something is maybe not, if one strand is maybe not quite as compelling as another, there is still a kind of 
spell that is cast by the understanding that uh, the movie will return to other things. And there's still the wonder of how is this going to cohere? How is this going to tie together? Mm-hmm. Which, of course, it doesn't totally. <laughs> but nor should it, yeah. I don't think. Right, right. Yeah, and so like it has particular spine or like it, like a very clear through line? I think it does. The, you know, because something that, that's funny about working in a film industry, and I'm sure you've experienced this going to early screenings of stuff at festivals or whatnot, is seeing films that you're excited for, but nobody else has seen them. And so <laughs> there yeah. is a kind of additional layer of discovery and I think wonderfully bewilderment that comes from seeing something for the first time. And when I saw first saw Coma, I was really just trying to get my bearings as to the sense of structure and continuity and Bonello recorded a really wonderful intro for the screening at NYFF where he said that there is a kind of rhythm and logic to the film. That it's, The term he used was very rigid. He said that there mm-hmm. is a structure that is very rigid, which I am willing to say slash concede is maybe coming from the fact that for him it has a logic, an internal mm-hmm. rhythm. But seeing the film again, I was able to basically follow different ways in which something will lead into another. And one of the ways I think it's it's a definitive movie about the COVID experience is that it understands when you're stuck in your inside your home by yourself, something about a key change in a song can feel monumental. You know, mm-hmm. like if you're dancing to a song and you feel like you're the only person dancing to it. But there is a kind of also desire to be seen there is this uh, desire for connectivity in ways that I think so many other directors would handle in a very kind of hacky on the nose manner I mean the idea of a movie about how we're all connected I think sort of suggests like a Paul Haggis or you know uh, Guillermo uh, what's that what's that guy's name uh, Ariaga the guy who writes all those interview two movies oh, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah like that hyperlink cinema is mm-hmm. how it's often mm-hmm. referred and it doesn't have that at all, I don't think. It, it's about kind of the brushstroke of a cut from one person to another that, mm. for me, was just so resonant seeing it again. It really did not lose its power a second time out. Excellent. Yeah, I'm really excited to see that. It was sort yeah. of, I mean, just when it was announced for Berlin, it was in the in the current section. Like, it, yeah. like it was sort of this, um, this surprise, and I'm definitely... Definitely hope it gets distribution uh, sometime soon. Not to get too inside baseball, but I have sort of made small gestures towards mm-hmm. are there ways to distribute this film? And the conversation around it has been very odd because I've heard more than one person say that they think that it's too hard of a sell. But I really <laughs> don't think that's true. I, I think that the movie has a major kind of future cult appeal to it i i think that there's genre elements that you can sell certainly there's like there's a kind of like horror science fiction oddity thing where i think the audience for it would be sort of self-selecting i honestly do believe that it will get something or another at some point it just might be you know it gets acquired by movie for a streaming mm-hmm. debut or something but given that the movie is about isolation it looks and sounds great in a the theater, but watching it at home is not <laughs> a totally insane thing to do. Oh, definitely. 
moving to the main slate to a film that also mystifyingly does not have distribution, Paul Schrader's Master Gardener. That's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which I, yeah, which which I uh, got to see kind of early, also at home. I kind of wish I had seen it in theaters because the copy of it I saw, frankly, did not look very good. But that just happens sometimes. It's also a thing, too, with later Schrader movies where if it doesn't look very good, that might be the point. So... <laughs> Yeah, Master Gardener I liked. I mean, I think that the thing I said about it, because it is, even by his own admission now, a the conclusion of a trilogy, began by First Reform, continued by the card counter, ended here. The thing I said about it, and I don't know if this reference scans, is that if Schrader movies were Bowie albums, this is definitely his lodger. Like, it, <laughs> it, it sort of feels like there is a bit of a way of going in new directions but it's also very much about kind of collecting and using mm-hmm. the environments and sort of head spaces and atmospheres of the previous two movies you know the first film is and a joke that a friend of mine made i think not incorrectly is that this recent run of movies it's almost as if schrader has two hats in one hat is a collection of professions in the other hat is a social issue so the first <laughs> hat you pull out priests then you pull out climate change. Second hat, you pull mm-hmm. out card counter. You pull out Abu Ghraib. Mm-hmm. This movie is a gardener and white supremacy. And I don't know how much about the movie's plot is actually known because there isn't a trailer for it, right? Yeah, I don't and think there has been. Uh, but you can you can tell like the basics. Yeah, definitely. I I I don't want to give away anything that wouldn't be known in the first like twenty or so minutes. But essentially, mm-hmm. Joel Edgerton plays a gardener who is tending to a mansion in Louisiana, right outside of New Orleans, that is owned by a very wealthy woman played by Sigourney Weaver. Mm-hmm. And essentially, Sigourney Weaver's I think it's her. It's something like her sister is deceased, but her ex-brother-in-law who trying to get this right is a black man thus has a black daughter Sigourney Weaver's niece comes to this mansion to work on the garden because she's sort of been experiencing trouble involving a criminal boyfriend and various uh, misfortunes that come with such a lifestyle and Joel Edgerton's character kind of takes an interest in her because of some things about his past involving white supremacy that we discover in no short order. And Mm -hmm. this being a Paul Schrader movie, you can imagine that there is some potential for violence, there is some potential for, uh, you know, a very simmering social tension that may or may not explode, you know, depending on what mood he's in, I guess. And the movie literally opens first shot of the movie after an abs- there's an absolutely wonderful opening credit sequence that actually kind of lifts from the age of innocence where oh. left side of the screen are the credits of the film right side of the screen are various flowers blooming ah, which is kind of an yeah. i don't know if it's a direct homage to the opening of the age of innocence but it certainly is feels like it's in conversation with it anyway mm-hmm. first shot of the movie is joe ledgerton sitting at his desk writing and Apparently, at the New York Film Festival screening, the audience burst out into a kind of appreciative laughter <laughs> at this because he has done it once again. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I, I like the movie overall. I, I don't think it's his best, but I also do wonder if there's an odd kind of dichotomy that was set up of 
after years and years of you know really struggling just to get movies made and if the movies were made your mileage would really vary on how good they were he makes a movie like first reformed which is kind of one of the greatest career comebacks i think i've seen a director pull off in my lifetime yeah and so for him to make kind of a a low budget tense serious movie about a social issue that has very strong performances is very smartly kind of uh attenuated with its subject to me that's frankly good enough glad he made Mm -hmm. it and um i really hope it gets released i 100 percent believe that movie will unlike Mm -hmm. coma (laughs) yeah (laughs) is it shot in like the similar sort of uh minimal or or like dryer-esque uh thing that that he that he did for first reformed and card counter yes it is it's actually what's funny is that he has he keeps expanding his frame first reformed is academy ratio <laughs> card counter mm-hmm. i believe is 185 this is a full widescreen letter oh interesting yeah uh-huh. but it is as aesthetic color wise as first reformed mm-hmm. um it has a bit more music because the score is actually done by dev hines i believe mm-hmm. I believe and yeah. mm-hmm. but no it, it is largely it, it is fairly stately in terms of shot choices shot length there's mm-hmm. not a great deal of shot reverse in the film i don't recall mm-hmm. uh there's a lot of one thing about the movie i would say is that it mostly takes place on this estate and you get a very good sense of the geography of it because you have these widescreen shots held for an extended period of time looking out into the garden there's actually a very ozu-esque sequence of joel edgerton and sigourney weaver talking on a porch where just the kind of like geometry of the shot the way that the rocking chairs are moving across the frame in a diagonal manner is definitely schrader-esque from ozu-esque to schrader-esque by osmosis (laughs) excellent yeah Yeah, i i'm definitely i was sort of surprised that it not necessarily that it got a muted reception, but just like sort of that it hasn't, uh, it wasn't more widely seen at, at NIF from what I could tell. Yeah. Um, uh, but yeah, like um, I'm definitely curious to see it. Uh, moving on to, uh, moving back to Currents uh, for Helena Min's Human Flowers of Flesh. That's right. Yeah. Human Flowers of Flesh, which I was very eager to see because that is another uh, situation where I ask myself, if I don't see this now in a theater, will I ever be able to? <laughs> and I'm really glad I did. I had a funny experience watching it because I think the vibe on it, if there is a vibe, was a little mixed, a little divided, which mm, right, is right. to be expected for a feature like this. This is not a movie that really courts, you know, an easy response but I think, funny enough, even though I say that one of my maybe problems with the movie is that I think it, sometimes it's a little too much about what it's capital A about. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's ostensibly about colonialism um, because it involves a group of people on a boat who are going, they're going from, uh, I believe, Marseille to uh, an area called uh, Sidi Bel Abes, which is in Algeria, which mm. was a former headquarters of the French Foreign Legion. But the movie is largely nonverbal. It's largely set on a ship. It has a very rich sound mix of 
lapping waves and a creaking boat and a sail that's kind of moving in the wind. There's a, a certain kind of... What, what term would I use to describe it? It's like a, a casual, relaxed density to the 16 millimeter images in that it is depicting fairly quotidian things like a person's hands tying a knot, waves on the ocean, um, the interior of the you know, below deck, but no images unpleasurable to look at. <laughs> and <laughs> I think that occasionally it gives into a sort of, it's a funny thing, which is that in film, as much as anything, you don't really realize that something has become a cliche until it's too late. And I realize <laughs> that I yeah. think it's kind of a cliche at this point for avant-garde experimental films to have 16 millimeter grainy images of some kind of flora or natural mm. life that's scored by like a creaky artifacted soundtrack <laughs> and i just thought to myself how many experimental shorts and features have i seen in recent years that have that oh the answer is a lot of them <laughs> and as i was watching it i thought oh that's that's kind of familiar isn't it and then at the same time my attention is being held throughout the movie you know mm. i'm not really zoning out i'm not really flagging and there's multiple images that kind of made me just go oh wow mm -hmm. there's kind of a sense of i haven't really seen that before there's a really mm -hmm. i think kind of amazing sequence on the boat at night where the camera is stationed as far as i can tell but the boat is obviously moving with the mm -hmm. current of the waves and the way that the moon in the sky is shifting around the mm -hmm. image almost like a light is a casually pretty amazing sequence you know um the movie ends with a strange cameo from denis levant who is apparently reprising his character from beau travail <laughs> which i don't know if his name is said in the film i don't even remember if his name was said in beau travail but the q a <laughs> after helena whitman said that in fact that is what's going on mm -hmm. in a way that i think is a a funny gesture because she explained that Helena, Whit Helena Whitman is German, and she explained that the title of Beau Travail, which of course in English is good work, which could be taken as mm -hmm. ironic given its mm -hmm. somewhat critical slash ironic portrayal of the French Foreign Legion. Apparently in Germany, the movie is just called Foreign Legion, <laughs> which kind of levels out any sort of criticism that, mm -hmm. and I think Whitman sort of was approaching it from the angle of what if this was from a movie that was just called Foreign Legion, oh, essentially. Uh -huh. Like, thinking about Beau from a different angle, let's mm -hmm. say. But I uh, I found that, that element of it compelling because he's really only on screen for a few minutes, and then the movie ends with a, an absolutely amazing song that I actually took out my phone, and I pulled out Shazam, but Shazam <laughs> did not recognize it. <laughs> and I'm realizing I blew it now because I met Helena Whitman, like, two nights later, and uh -huh. uh, it... Full disclosure, incredibly nice person, had a really mm. lovely time talking, and I forgot to ask her what the song is, <laughs> but uh, she's on Instagram. I might have to now Instagram message her just to ask what the last song in the movie is, because it was, <laughs> it was so nice. But Human Flowers of Flesh, yeah, I, I, I have some conflicted feelings about it. I just think because the movie is so in command of itself, and Helena Whitman, I think, has very unique which is to say 
unbounded, uncompromised ways of looking at the natural world that if it ever lapses into a certain kind of comfort or cliche, I'm a slight skepticism will present itself, mm -hmm. you know, but all told, I, I do recommend that film very highly. Yeah, interesting to hear that just because Drift, which I which I quite like, but I need to rewatch. I I remember that being overt and being a digital film. Yeah, and so like to to hear her like working in sixteen, I assume that um, there were she was probably she was probably working sixteen before she had plans to mm -hmm. do it for this. But like, um, so I actually haven't seen Drift. Oh, okay, no, no. Okay. I so it's funny. I hadn't seen Drift because people who I rely on for recommendations for certain avant-garde features said to me, mm -hmm. I don't think you're going to like it. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I feel bad because, you know, I, I like this movie a lot and frankly, just Helena Whitman is so charming in person. And so has no sort of airs about her as an avant-garde artist. And I'm like, all right, mm -hmm. I got to see drift now. So I will, I will watch <laughs> it, but I did not know okay. that it was a digitally shot feature. Yeah. Um, if I'm not misremembering, of course, uh, but yeah, right. moving on to a, a director that has worked very extensively in uh, 16 millimeter uh, and back to the main slate is Pietro Marcello's Scarlet. Yes, yes. Scarlet, his first film since Martin Eden, he did that little detour with that film Futuro, yeah, which actually Grasshopper acquired in my like last month there, <laughs> so I never saw it. Um, <laughs> but it's funny, Marcello is someone who I, you know, full disclosure, have sort of worked with at Grasshopper through his feature Lost and Beautiful. I also mm -hmm. produced a Blu-ray of both Lost and Beautiful and his movie The Mouth of the Wolf. Mm -hmm. I think I've always admired his films, but been kind of what I would call Marcello curious. Yeah. It's, I feel like my feelings would have been sort of like, if there's Marcello appreciation, I was like Marcello adjacent mm -hmm. a bit, in that his movies are really quite beautiful looking, and I don't think contemporary Italian cinema really has a lot of exciting directors. I mean, if mm -hmm. if somebody has names to offer, I'm more than happy to look into that because Marcello, I feel like, has partly broken out because he is kind of the preeminent Italian director of his day. Unless you count Sorrentino, mm -hmm. but I don't think people who listen to a podcast <laughs> like this would, per se. <laughs> Sorry, Dan Sleet, if you're listening. I know Dan is a fan. But oh, I didn't realize that. <laughs> I believe he is, yeah. I remember he really oh. liked The Great Beauty, at least. But, oh, okay. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there was something about his project that very being very rooted in Italian history and a certain kind of cultural myth that mm -hmm. I am just not very well versed in or have I really chosen to explore I sometimes felt at a slight distance from and so make of it what you will maybe take it with a grain of salt when I say that uh, I really thought this was a terrific film and I think it's mm. my favorite movie of his I've seen and it might mm. actually be my favorite it might be my favorite movie in the main slate that I've oh, wow. seen it's at least mm -hmm. you know top two <laughs> there's there's one other movie that I'm sure we'll discuss later, but it, it really kind of sat with me in an incredible way because I came out of it finding myself deeply moved by the film's portrait of a sheltered young woman who kind of finds this brief love in a very mythical gesture. Louis Garrel plays a pilot who literally falls from the sky mm -hmm. and kind of awakens a certain kind of, not just sexual, but romantic desire that's gone long unfulfilled in her but the movie 
expresses that in a very kind of sketch-like non-prurient way where it's somehow through these really i mean truly magnificent images i I said after that marcello feels like one of the only guys working today whose movies don't look like they're dcps i mean i i truly forgot that i was watching a dcp during the Mm. movie because Mm -hmm. it's this attention to it's not just an attention to texture that 60 miller ostensibly brings out but an attention to color as well and kind of what colors are going to get the best out of a 16 millimeter film stock what really Mm -hmm. allows like a kind of graininess and grit and a sort of like seasoning of the image to pronounce itself and scarlet i think is an example of how you use 16 millimeter par excellence at least in a Mm -hmm. contemporary form because i'd be curious if the movie used a digital intermediate in its post-production Mm-hmm. Um, the way that the film has no trace of a kind of milky digital coldness. Mm-hmm. And in these sequences, you know, you there's, there's a kind of lushness to the environment and the skin texture and the, the color of their clothing, but romantic trysts in this movie seem to end as soon as they begin. And mm-hmm. it allows the movie to have a kind of unburdened sensation to it like it's all Mm -hmm. sort of flitting past almost like a memory you could say um yeah i don't know i i thought it was i thought it was really quite lovely and Mm -hmm. that is going to come out from kino lorber in april i understand Mm -hmm. so fortunately that will be coming out and i i don't know i think it's a movie to see in a theater it's shot in academy ratio uh Mm -hmm. seen at the alice tully hall that means that the film was very tall. Mm-hmm. And there's an interesting effect that happened with how the movie is kind of, it's lit in these sort of warm amber ochre tones. Mm-hmm. And something that it did was it actually gave the screen the impression of being like a window, uh-huh. less than a distinct object against a wall with a stage in mm-hmm. front of it. Like it gave it a really kind of, uh, th- there's, a, there's a very like window-like experience to seeing this movie. Mm-hmm interesting yeah Yeah. does it also have that sort of unmoored temporarily unmoored quality that something like lost and beautiful or martin eden do uh archival footage yes but also just the the general feeling of if if there's like a specific time it takes place in or yes it's no i believe there is i mean it's it's decidedly a period piece there's Mm -hmm. no doubt about that and there is some of the archival footage that he used in lost and beautiful and martin eden or at least the style of archival footage integrating with the rest of the movie mm-hmm. what year it's set in specifically i mean maybe i could quickly look but yeah it, it, i would not describe it as unmoored except to say that mm-hmm. what's funny and actually something now i'm realizing what i meant to say earlier is that i took it as despite some mythological overtones of the louis Garrel character i took it as a fairly immediate deeply felt straightforward coming of Mm -hmm. age love story and i discovered only after the fact that it's inspired by a folk tale called the scarlet sails Mm -hmm. and the friend who i saw it with said after oh it's like a fairy tale Mm -hmm. and that idea just did not really occur to me because i a i just don't really like fairy tales as like an archetype (laughs) i I find them Mm -hmm. kind of silly but it's it's so deeply felt that to me it supersedes the kind of mythological 
um, burden slash veneer fairy tales mm-hmm. tend to put on things. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've mostly heard it's described as a fairy tale, to, so to hear it being described as more immediate yeah. definitely sounds very intriguing, like yeah. the sort of um, intermingling of those two. Let's move on to what I suspect is your, uh, is your favorite film, The Main Slate, Mia Hansen Loves One Fine Morning. Yes, so you've guessed well. <laughs> yeah, no, uh, I mean, it's funny, uh, to, to the listeners, I'll be blunt and upfront that there's always no point in me talking about this movie because I'm just so in the bag for whatever Mia Hansen Love does at this point. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this is her eighth feature now. And, like yeah, and it's only a year after Bergman Island, which granted was supposed to debut in 2020. So, mm-hmm. you know, slight caveat on that, but um, it's just, this is, but the thing about it is that this is her first, I think, very kind of traditional Mia Hansen Love movie since at least Things to Come in 2016. Mm-hmm. Because Maya was mostly set overseas. Bergman Island, in addition to being set on the literal Bergman Island, has a kind of metatextual. Russian doll structure to it. Mm-hmm. This is uh, her returning to a Parisian environment, uh, academic characters, uh, very forceful but not exactly burdened play with time in that whereas a lot of her films have a bifurcated structure, this movie glides through the four seasons of the year in a fairly mm-hmm. quick manner because the film itself is probably i would guess like a hundred minutes or so Mm -hmm. but in it leah sedu plays a professional interpreter who is at once experiencing the decline of her father from alzheimer's and is also developing a relationship with the father of one of her daughter's schoolmates and the movie i don't think makes too conscious an effort to connect those two threads except to say that it is the experiences of this woman at this moment in her life and her sense of i think about watching you know a kind of a what we could call a classic me Hansen love movie is the sense of direct intense fixation on a person's experiences as the rest of the world is kind of passing them by and so the movie has a sort of relentless quality to it of she has to deal with the intense difficulty of watching her father decay there's the excitement of a new romantic relationship with this man who's played by Melville Poupard you know who maybe Mm -hmm. your listeners know as Raoul Ruiz regular he's in a lot of Mm -hmm. other French productions you know this very handsome charming man who she's involved Mm with and the movie just doesn't feel like it is uh being unfair to its characters and feel like it's overly burdening them but it is kind of putting her through the ringer all the while mm-hmm. it is so deeply atmospheric and it's parisian apartments and uh you know the various kind of quotidian treatment of the streets of paris where you have one sequence where she's experiencing one difficulty in summer as she's going down a street 85 minutes later it's now winter she's experiencing a different thing walking down the same street. Mm -hmm. And what I would say about this movie is that this is a movie that understands why a street you walk down in the summer feels completely different when you walk down it in the winter. Mm -hmm. And it never really underlines that. It never tries to emphasize, oh, look, here she is again. Mm -hmm. There's just a kind of naturally felt experience Mm -hmm. of that. And 
I have kind of a, a very nice tradition, which is that now every time Mia Hansen Love comes to the U.S. for a movie, I will interview her. And mm-hmm. I talk to her about this movie. The interview will be out when the movie opens in early December. And, you know, when I spoke to her for Bergman Island, she said that she was in the process of making this new film one fine morning and that she thought maybe it would be kind of like turning a new page about Mm. being about new things in her, in her filmography. And she said, but there's also this thing that happens where, and this quote has kind of haunted me because it's so true to my own way of living. She said, this thing happens where you think you are past something. You think you found a new way of living and then something happens and you realize that you're actually just worried about all the same stuff. Mm. And so I saw her at this hotel uh, by Central Park, and I said, so you told me this last year, and she literally just put her head on the desk <laughs> and said, I'm actually still worried about the same things. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that's to say it is a, a distinctly recognizable entry into her filmography, but it doesn't feel like she's repeating herself mm-hmm. either. Like the particular conflicts, I think it treats the experience of Alzheimer's. As someone who has unfortunately had loved ones die of Alzheimer's, it treats it in a very serious, unvarnished, unsentimental way. You mm. know, there's a really heartbreaking scene where um, she's playing for her father one of his favorite pieces of music, and I think it's. Oh, it's Schubert. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. And he says that he can't hear it because it just like it it, it, like overburdens him to Mm, hear it mm -hmm. now and i think there's a lot of movies that would kind of try to accentuate this experience this conflict but it is essentially shot edited blocked like any other scene in the movie Mm -hmm. you know that to me i don't know to, to do that but to also evoke something very atmospheric very deeply felt is i think almost impossible to do but she manages to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was definitely sort of surprised that it got a like less, like sort of a more muted reception or something like yeah. that. Simply because, like, especially after Berkman Island had this sort of interesting breakout. Uh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm definitely really, really happy to hear that. And I, I'm very behind on me enhanced love in general, so I need to watch more, watch a lot more. Uh, but I'm very excited for this. Uh, moving to a film that I've heard almost nothing about but uh i'm curious about it is uh, incurrence is remote by uh maya tusi and mika ronberg yeah that's right well again this is one of those situations where something looks intriguing it doesn't have distribution it doesn't seem likely mm-hmm. to get it and mm-hmm. uh, purely inside baseball but the tickets for current screenings are also just less expensive i think they're like Mm-hmm. 17 bucks or something mm-hmm. and so it's kind of the feeling of well I want to go to a New York Film Festival screening it'll cost me less I mean I'm also like I'm such a privileged jerk because I get to go to a lot of PNI <laughs> screenings and then I also uh, frankly get to ask people like hey could you just hold me a ticket for this if it's like a pu- <laughs> if it's like a publicist or something like that you right, know right. but this movie does not have a publicist so I like good paying customer shelled out <laughs> for it and someone asked me after they were kind of surprised that i went because it was actually an encore screening in the last weekend the festival Mm -hmm. had effectively ended but they were doing Mm -hmm. encore screenings of titles and Mm -hmm. i gave a that rationalization but 
you know, B after it was over, they asked how to go, and I described it as a, a gentleman's three out of five. <laughs> Which is to say that the movie... I mean, I don't know how much you know about the, the Not, premise nothing. of it. Well, so, it was kind of, you know, the... My heart goes out to programmers who have to try to encapsulate these movies in, like, 250 mm -hmm. words. Mm -hmm. It was sort of resorted to being called, like, a pandemic-era Jean Dillman, uh -huh. which the movie kind of has traces of because we follow this woman who's played by Okwi Akpak Vasili, who is a professional dancer, is actually the subject of a grasshopper release called Bronx Gothic that oh, we right. put out yeah, yeah. in, like, 2017. So yeah. I was actually pleasantly surprised to see her in this movie. Mm-hmm. And it takes place in a very kind of, um, a very kitschily designed dystopian future, mm -hmm. where you see outside her window and you can see flying cars and uh, you see like a huge, you know, metropolis cityscape, but she's inside her apartment during some kind of thing that is keeping people locked inside. And the movie has this initially repetitive structure of her waking up, making breakfast, working out tending to plants and then at night she is looking at this screen that kind of is like a free-floating screen where she watches some talk show and she sort of connects with people on a comment board and they discover that something unusual is going on because they realize that a clock in the background is running backwards but nobody else seems to notice mm -hmm. it is a group of i think five or six women who start convening and wondering what's going on they unravel some sort of odd conspiracy. And this movie, kind of like another movie we might end up talking about, uh, Frederick Wiseman's A Couple, it's mm -hmm. it truly just is the epitome of, well, I'm glad I saw it. Because <laughs> I think that there is definitely a kind of vision here. There is a... You know, it felt like the two directors, Maya Tusi and Mika Rottenberg took some good lessons away from Ackerman in terms of what boring menial task can you still wring interest and tension from mm -hmm. you know I think there just comes a point where there's a kind of over-reliance on narrative continuity A to B plotting that doesn't really serve the pacing and structure. When I say structure, I mean the actual like architecture of the movie very well. I found myself growing kind of restless as it was trying to localize its sort of styles and ostensible social commentary into this kind of mystery sci-fi plot that's all set in a single location. Um, I don't know. It, it's, it's a worthy effort. I would not discourage people from seeing it but i do what it's funny one of my least favorite things that people say about a movie is oh it could stand to lose 20 minutes because <laughs> a why is it always it's always 20 minutes specifically that people say a movie could stand <laughs> it's to true. lose. <laughs> which indicates to me that that's not a real there's no real metric that we're talking about here right mm -hmm. but b of course the nature of film editing is such that if a scene is just cut somewhat differently or scenes are rearranged that could have a much more profound effect than just cutting out 20 minutes willy-nilly. But watching the movie, I did get the sense that the movie's 89 minutes. If it were somehow in, like, the 65-70 range, mm -hmm. there could be something more 
more intriguing than emerges from it. I think part of the problem is that I sort of found myself wondering if there was a fear on the filmmakers' parts that if they did it like so, the movie would be more of like a curio than a uh, right. than mm-hmm. like a ostensibly fully fledged feature. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a it was a somewhat frustrating experience, but it was not something I regret seeing at all. Mm-hmm. Interesting. I was debating whether to talk about, but since you mentioned it, uh, moving back to the main slate, uh, yes, uh, Frederick Weiss wins a couple. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's right. Um, yeah, a couple is a movie that I. So it's funny. It was my first day of press screenings. I saw Hong Sang Soo's Walk Up, mm-hmm. which I hadn't seen, and then I saw right after that the novelist film, which I had seen. But mm-hmm. that was like four months prior. I think the novelist film is super great. I think it's one of the best Hongs in recent memory. Mm-hmm. And then I was sitting around and one thing about these screenings is this is kind of like a gift horse in a mouth, but when you have to wear a mask during a film screening, it, it starts to wear on you a little bit. Like mm-hmm. and I say this with full understanding and sympathy for people who have to work like real actual jobs wearing mm-hmm. masks, because that seems so tough and I I'm so grateful I don't have to do that. Like, mm-hmm. it, it is just sitting there watching a movie, but it does kind of interrupt the flow and the experience of seeing a film. And mm-hmm. I remember I was kind of, I was like, I don't know, I've kind of been wearing this thing for like two and a half hours now. And the two Hong movies are really good, but they are not demanding, but you know, mm-hmm. you see, you see a new Hong movie for the first time and you have to kind of go into, like, full auteurist observation mode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, the thing about a Hong Sang Soo movie, and we don't have to talk about this this exact second, but it seems so casual and tossed off from the outside, but mm-hmm. I find that I'm kind of on my tiptoes watching it, waiting for some kind of ostensible, objective mission statement, mm-hmm. whatever, to click in. Right. So after these two movies, you know, I'm kind of like do i want to see this and i'm like well it's about to play it's 63 minutes it's a new wiseman feature that you'll see on a big screen Mm -hmm. why don't you just go see it and that kind of enthusiasm carried through and was matched by the film itself Mm -hmm. which is i'm here right now i'm seeing this and from what i understand you know for those who don't know a couple is based on letters that uh tolstoy's wife wrote to him about their marriage which like many marriages involving great artists was not very happy and Mm -hmm. they had uh apparently 13 children together (laughs) and they were married for 36 years and this actress uh natalie butafu whose most famous credit is actually irma vep the original irma vep she was in kings Uh and queen she's in a uh yeah um a french actress who's maybe not so well known in the United States, but certainly has her list of credits, mm-hmm. does these kind of dramatic interpretations of the letters that Tolstoy's wife wrote mm-hmm. in a way that I found of interest, but not a performance style that I totally caught into. Mm-hmm. It kind of starts at a certain volume of this kind of coiled up tension and feeling that's being released. And of course, resentment is going to emerge from that. And at times there's even a kind of rage. There's one sequence where she kind of is like attacking a, like a brush or something. She's kind of like shaking Mm -hmm. it back and forth. Mm -hmm. 
in a moment that felt very human, felt like it was kind of coming from something real, but there's just a point where I can't say this one-sided depiction of this marriage had a much dramatic hefter weight to mm-hmm. it. Now, Wiseman has kind of said, I think he's kind of intimated that the movie, in a way, feels like him working through his own marriage. And mm-hmm. a friend of mine said, oh, well, he's he's made a movie about so many institutions. Now he's made a movie about the institution of marriage. <laughs> Which, uh, yeah, sh- okay, yes. I, I guess there's just a feeling of this expressing itself into a portrait that feels dramatically compelling that seems to have an emotional tenor to it that's not so vibrating on one frequency mm-hmm. you know i didn't come away from it feeling that there was per se mm-hmm. but the movie looks quite nice and it's shot uh actually in widescreen which i was shocked mm-hmm. by i fully <laughs> fully expected this to be an academy ratio sort of thing yeah and it shot digitally. It shot with a very mm-hmm. vibrant, bright digital. Uh, the cinematographer is John Davy, who has shot a lot of the recent Wiseman films. Mm-hmm. And there's a certain landscape film approach because a lot of the movie is outside. It's in, uh, it's in gardens. It's by the sea. It's on the rocks by the sea. And whatever it sort of goes into a landscape film mode, I was so happy with that. And I would have, frankly, preferred to watch a film that was exclusively that. Mm-hmm. You know, th- those sequences are uh, really something. Mm-hmm. So, Are you generally a Wiseman fan? I don't know. I, I have kind of a complicated <laughs> relationship, which is that mm-hmm. I've mostly only seen the more recent films. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I find that they're kind of a certain, like, willfully telegrammatic style of sitting in a place and letting something play out over an extended period of time in a slightly I don't want to say I don't want to say sadist quality but <laughs> I have heard stories of people going to screenings of Wiseman movies and on minute 11 of some town council meeting people will burst out laughing like one person will <laughs> laugh and then the rest uh-huh. of the audience will have this kind of emotional release and they'll start laughing sure. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think intentionally so on Wiseman's part. Um, there is a difference of whether or not I want to watch that. I think mm-hmm. Wiseman's one of those directors who it depends on what kind of mood I'm in, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I remember I saw Ex Libris, the New York Public Library, at a screening in, in Poland, actually, of oh, the Festival oh. Camera Image, which I right, go to right. every year. And Wiseman was there for a big retrospective of his work mm-hmm. and... I remember I had a pretty good time with it. You know, it's four hours and I'm in the middle of a festival, so I don't always have a world of time. Mm-hmm. But then I remember I started watching Monrovia, Indiana, all of a year later, and mm-hmm. just found myself really like, I can't, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. I, I just really felt myself impatient with the approach to the subject, with the sort of quotidian nature of it. Mm-hmm. But who knows what I was feeling that day. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'll come back to it at a different time. Mm-hmm. I think the thing is, is that, you know, I like the early stuff mm-hmm. a lot. And I, there's more recent films that I'm very curious to see. Like National Gallery, I haven't seen. Right. And because I have an interest in museums and not just in what they offer, but how they're run, on the basis of the subject, I'm sure I would want to see it. But mm-hmm. 
I don't know about you, but with Wiseman, it's such a funny thing, because some of his titles feel like warnings, sort of. <laughs> like a Frederick Wiseman movie called Domestic Violence. Yeah, yeah. Or Domestic Violence 2. Yeah. Frankly, there, there's an auteurist obligation, an auteurist devotion that I don't have to him that makes it mm-hmm. tough for me to decide I'm going to sit down and watch a, you know, how long is it? Like 145-minute movie Something called like Domestic that. Violence. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, I just looked up domestic violence is 196 minutes, oh, right? right? <laughs> sort of a tall order or like yeah. near death, which is like six hours. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I think the way I feel about Wiseman is that I will just someday have more of a mood to watch his movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel that. I actually had the sort of uh, you talking about mood isn't something I've considered before, but it's actually like something that I feel like in retrospect, I sort of felt I had I feel like I had the the opposite reactions to Ex Libris and Monrovia, okay. as you did, uh, because I I do actually really love Monrovia, but that's mm-hmm. the one Wiseman uh, that I've seen that like I really felt like I got what he was doing. Yeah, and like there, and certainly there's a lot to appreciate in City Hall and things like that, but he's he's still so a director I'm still working through, so yeah. it's definitely interesting to hear that and about a couple. Uh, we'll be uh, winding down with a few former films, but first uh, we cannot not discuss Hong Sang Su's right. film and Walk Up. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which I've seen both and I think they're both uh, magnificent. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. yeah, the novelist film I got to see back in May because Lincoln Center did a, a really incredible retrospective mm-hmm. of his movies yeah. and incredible because it was two for one double features. Right. And I... <laughs> Not only have I seen every Hong Sang Su movie, but I actually have managed to see all of them in chronological order of <laughs> release. Yeah, yeah. And a really incredible experience when you're watching for the first time. You know, at this point, would it make much difference if I saw a walk up before the novelist film? Not, maybe not necessarily, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's fun to keep that running. And so, yeah. you know, I had this opportunity to see the novelist film before. It's become like this weird game of like yeah oh god well if he has this one that's premiered but i haven't seen it yet he could announce a new one next week and then what if i had to have his... it's not healthy i don't advocate yeah. this behavior at all like please spare yourselves if you find yourselves going down this path but uh yeah novelist film i saw months ago and it stuck with me really in a major way because i think it is uh, you know such such a perfectly attenuated design movie about the life and time and process of an artist Mm -hmm. partly because it doesn't at almost no point does it show this novelist who has kind of decided to get into filmmaking out of a sort of frustration with her creative life Mm -hmm. at almost no point do you see her working on anything right right even when she's sort of discussing this movie with an actress played of course by kim min hee Mm -hmm. it is it is sort of uh from an from the angle of a newcomer a neophyte someone Mm -hmm. who's sort of finding their way and i found that it had a i mean this is this is fine because this movie and walk up both have some of the longest shots of tong's career and I think that there is such a... Uh, it's like at this point he just is so preternaturally able to write for his actors mm-hmm. and the scenarios, the larger scenarios that are guiding the movie. Because as a listener of the show may or may not know, Hong will write dialogue the day of 
shooting a scene. Mm-hmm. And so the actors get the scripts and they have to remember it very fast and it's all very fresh. And I found that there was just a, uh, a combination of long extended shots, usually held stationary, with a very quotidian, often very funny dialogue, mm-hmm. maintained the kind of creative tension that has mm-hmm. defined the most recent run of Hong movies for me. The thing about the novelist film, too, is that most movies struggle to have one good ending. This movie <laughs> somehow somehow has two perfect endings, uh, including, I think, the most nakedly emotional and moving sequence in a Hong movie ever. Yeah. In mm-hmm. what is, what, his, like, 27th? I think so, yeah. Movie? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, no, I, I really loved it. I had a great time. And then Walk Up I enjoyed. I saw it, you know at 10 a.m., which is kind of a funny time to see a very relaxed, (laughs) kind of, not sleepy movie, but like the novelist film, it's shot in black and white, but whereas the novelist film's black and white, I think has a bit more grit and texture to it. Yeah. The black and white of Walk Up, I think, is definitely a bit flatter. Yeah. And it's also, it's interesting, too, because the structure, the idea of the movie is like, oh, you know, it's different parts of this apartment building, but it doesn't, Mm really play into that it's much more about a relationship between a father and a daughter um this landlord character as well who comes into the film Mm -hmm. and i was watching it enjoying it but also maybe at a slight distance and then there is per usual with hong there was a kind of structural trick twist Mm -hmm. at the end of the movie that i found recontextualized a lot of the drama and character tensions in a really useful and compelling way. Mm-hmm. Like it felt like it truly felt as though this was a. I don't know. It it felt like truly the movie had been building to this, but never announcing itself as doing so. Mm-hmm. You know what it says about the protagonist of the film felt to mm-hmm. me very, um, yeah, very exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree about that. Yeah, both are. I, I do really, really love both, especially Walk Up. Actually, like I sort of okay. had known about the structure going in, but just like the way that it actually plays out, and especially I completely did not anticipate that uh, ending that you're referring to, uh, which yeah. I think is just so, uh, which which I think is really remarkable. And yeah, yeah. Uh, both films are really great, and Novel's film is now distributed in in right. the same year, which is pretty rare for a Hong uh, and. It's really, I'm really happy to see that. It's actually now playing at Lincoln Center. Yes. In New York. Yeah. I mean, God bless Cinema Guild for continuing mm-hmm. to put these out. I, do you want to hear like a funny, I don't think this is giving away too much or being too inside baseball. The funny experience I had with Hong movies when they were premiering. Go ahead. Well, I just think it's kind of, <laughs> it's interesting because, you know, Cinema Guild is now the only company really that's releasing new Hong movies and, mm-hmm they will be announced as having acquired them before they even play. Right. What's funny is that when I was at Grasshopper, a festival would roll around Berlin, Locarno, and it would be announced that there was a new Hong Sang-soo movie, and my boss and I would email, and we would say, you know, let's ask for a link. Let's email the people at Fine Cut, mm-hmm. which is the Korean sales agent that represents Hong. Mm-hmm. And I was lucky enough where I could see these movies like the day that they were announced. It was mm-hmm. always on a Sanando link with <laughs> all caps, the word sample emblazoned in the top left corner. Yeah. yeah. And I'd watch it and it would invariably be good, occasionally mm-hmm. be totally excellent. Mm-hmm. And then I would, my boss and I would convene and we would be like, so do we want to 
you know, it's like the asking price for it is probably not going to be too crazy. Mm-hmm. But it's literally, it's always, it was always the first movie of a festival that I saw. And the thing uh-huh. is, for a company like Grasshopper, if you buy one movie at a festival, you may not be able to buy anything else. At least right. not mm-hmm. right after it's premiered. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we would just be like, well, maybe not this time. And then <laughs> we would also get an email from Fine Cut and they would say, you know, full disclosure, another U.S. distributor is interested in the movie. And we'd be like, well, we know who that is. <laughs> this isn't... There's not... There's, there's, there's no mystery who it is. And so... I don't know. It's funny because it's not as if only Cinema Gold can release these movies. Mm-hmm. I just think it's a thing where they've gotten into a really good pattern releasing them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? But that was always just a funny thing because then... Lo and behold, four days later, Cinema Guild acquires. <laughs> yeah, that's definitely uh, that. That makes sense. <laughs> Just like the the entire entire chain of events like that. And yes, of course, Cinema Guild is doing incredible work. I'm not just saying that because they invited me to write for them. <laughs> oh uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I think uh, we'll move on to the final film. Uh, moving to the revival section, Edward Young's Confusion, Confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. How much fun this was. Yes. I, yeah, it, it's funny because the, there's, there's little things that happen in film culture that kind of renew your faith in it and put a bit of pep in your step. And mm-hmm. for me, as of late, it is the fact that Edward Yang's last two unrestored movies, Confusion, mm-hmm. Confusion and Mahjong, mm-hmm. have been restored, mm-hmm. which now completes the set. Yes. Yeah. And like almost anybody in the western world who's even seen a confusion confusion <laughs> i saw it on a particular laser disc rip <laughs> yeah that is on various torrent networks yes because otherwise you don't have much of a choice it's not a mm-hmm. great choice but if you really mm-hmm. want to see it thus it is and i saw it about 5 years ago and really mm-hmm. totally loved it and was nervous not nervous but you know like hopefully your taste evolves and changes in certain ways over the course of five years am i still gonna love this movie mm-hmm. and then i went to go see it and you know i just i had a completely wonderful time partly because mm-hmm. i had forgotten most of it like just plainly what happens in the movie mm-hmm. and i you know the restoration looks terrific um it's still incredibly funny i forgot that it has one of the most like heart-stopping, wonderful last moments of any movie ever. Mm-hmm. And um, the crowd also completely ate it up. It was it was really funny because I went to a Friday night screening at the festival, and the theater, it was the uh, Francesca Beale Theater mm-hmm. at Lincoln Center, which is a decently sized venue. It was completely filled up, mm-hmm. and the crowd was, I think, mostly Taiwanese. Yeah, mm-hmm. Um, like I just heard during the movie, you know, the movie is very funny and I Mm -hmm. laughed at it, but the crowd was like roaring with laughter (laughs) at stuff that I, a huge fan of this movie found merely pretty funny. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of a fascinating thing to experience the cross cultural exchange, which is obviously such a concern of Edward Yang's work. Mm -hmm. I felt like seeing it in theaters. I got to (laughs) uh, have a taste of that for myself. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Young's, of course, my favorite director. It was actually the first film of his that played at NIF, which is sort of 
Oh, really? Very, yeah, which is kind of a surprising thing to think about. Like, they got to him right after Bright Summer Days. So it was like this and much okay. older than, than EE. So it's like the... So, and yeah, I did also see it in that rip a, a number of years ago with... I think the copy that I had didn't have subtitles for the... the um, for the scene that takes place in that blue conference room, that sort of conversation, oh, yeah. uh, or it's like it was very spotty, so I had to use my own uh, limited Mandarin to oh, try wow. to figure it out. Uh, but yeah, like it's it was. Um, I'm just so happy that they're making progress on these, and that like it seems like Mahjong at least might finally get uh, restored. And do you know if, uh, who's distributing it in um, in the U.S.? No, I don't. So part of okay. what made it kind of imperative to see is that I knew it didn't have a distributor. Mm-hmm. And at the front of the film appears a credit belonging to Central Media Picture Corps. Mm-hmm. Does that sound right? Yeah, it's so- something like that. Yeah, Something like that. It's. Mm-hmm. I also saw a restoration of Simon Ling's The River on Tuesday, oh, right. which had the same right. logo in front of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But no, no, it hasn't been announced yet. And what's funny is that Mahjong and A Confusion Confusion, the restorations were actually revealed to have existed this summer. And mm-hmm. it was expected that they were going to play in Taiwan as part of some festival or something mm-hmm. in summer 2023. Mm-hmm. So I was actually very pleasantly surprised that Confusion Confusion made it over here when it did. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm hoping that means... I'm sure, like, by this time next year, Mahjong will have played at NYFF mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. something. But from what I understand, it, it's done. It's mm-hmm. out there. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's great news. Yeah. I think we'll go out on that note. Uh, thank you so much, Nick, for agreeing to do this uh, by yourself. And I think, uh, uh, and thank you to the listener again for bearing with so many delays uh, for this <laughs> podcast. But it is still alive. Uh, I'll confidently say that. And. I hope you will continue listening. Um, and yes, thank you very much, Nick. Oh, well, thank you for asking me. I and Thank you to anybody who has listened to me prattle on about these movies <laughs> that you probably have not seen. <laughs> but no, 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 this was, this was really fun. And uh, it's good to know Catalyst and Witness rises yet again. Yes, absolutely. Catalyst and Witness is alive and well. Uh, so yes, thank you very much. Yeah, of course. It was really my pleasure. Yes, thank you. Wine and wine and wine and wine, get back, get back.